If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and I am so excited today to have Andy Mara on to talk about building trans-inclusive nonprofits. I will share with you before I introduce Andy, I think this is a pressing issue for nonprofits all across the country. I believe that the vast majority of nonprofits are not doing enough to create trans-inclusive environments. And that's not just for their staff. It's for their volunteers, for their clients or patients, for their community members. They should be doing more. And I will also share with you that I have been trying to get Andy on this podcast for probably six months, nine months, something like that. But she is incredibly busy as the leader of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. She is their executive director, and I will share with you, has been doing incredible work as a leader in the fight for equality and justice for people who are transgender and gender non-binary. She's been there just about two years as this podcast gets released, and in those two years, the size of the organization has tripled. They have never had as many lawyers on staff as they do now that are helping with name changes, advising clients, pursuing litigation so that we can have not just a more just world at one organization or one employer, but across multiple employers. Started new programs, like, for example, a healthcare access project. She has done incredible things at Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, while also being an outstanding advocate for the community and for equality. One of the things that I really value about Andy is she comes at this from a number of different perspectives. She has a lived experience that informs the work that she does. She also has worked for a number of nonprofits, most of which are in the LGBTQ space. 
but has been on the other side as a funder as well. And so she was at the Arcus Foundation before joining as the executive director at TILDEF. So she sees this from so many different perspectives. I cannot think of a better guest to have on to talk about trans-inclusive nonprofits from an intersectional lens. Hey, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And it is a delight to finally sit down and chat with you. I also forgot to say, you and I got to know each other because I was the interim at TILDEF and you immediately followed me. And from the very first moment that we met, I knew that TILDEF was going to be in such great hands with you as the leader. And my gut instinct was right because, again, the organization is so much more impactful than it was two years ago, three years ago, probably ever. So I felt like the best way for us to start this conversation is... If the Boys and Girls Club of Lexington asked for advice on creating a trans-inclusive organization, what would you say to them? That's a great question. And I think for your listeners, uh, for myself, I've spent the vast majority of my career working uh, in the movement for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights. And so in posing this question, it's, it's a fun one. Um, because in many ways it's it's outside of my professional experience. But what I think it is important for your listeners, um, many of whom probably do not work at LGBTQ plus organizations, is the first step is to listen. Before uh, building out new best practices in your HR programs, before talking to your staff, really take a step back, zoom out, and do your homework approach this as you would uh, approach a feasibility study for a new program or a new project at your organization. Uh, Do a landscape analysis and speak to uh, organizations perhaps in your local communities that may have this expertise as you accumulate information that will inform what you may or may not do at your organization. I think that there is no one-size-fits-all solution for making sure workplaces are more trans-inclusive. But at the same time, I do think there are a couple ways that an organization can begin to introduce this idea of becoming more inclusive, creating a more inclusive and affirming environment. A great example is that for the Boys and Girls Club, whether it's in Lexington, uh, Kentucky or Lexington, Massachusetts, is to start with pronouns. Pronouns indicating a person's pronouns um, on your email signature or on your business cards are a great way to signify that the trans person, whether they're a client, a community member, a staff member who may or may not be out as trans, a donor or a funder, that your workplace has a baseline understanding of trans issues and is working to create a more inclusive environment. I would even go a step further and say that for, especially for more uh, direct service oriented uh, organizations that have a lot of interactions with clients Another great trick is by including uh, pronoun stickers uh, in your lobbies or your reception areas. I know that with COVID, it's it's a bit more difficult and tricky to do that. But, uh, you know, for those interactions that you do have in person, pronoun stickers are a great way to indicate to the client as well as to other stakeholders that may walk through your doors that you have an awareness of uh, trans issues, that you want to respect people's pronouns and that for a trans person that you may or may not know that walks through your door, it's an incredibly strong social cue that this organization is a safer and more affirming environment than others. 
So I'm going to ask you for a moment of coaching on this. I have pronouns in my email signature, and Lexi, who works with me at Successful Nonprofits, also has pronouns in her email signature. And I believe it's an important way that I can show allyship. But every now and then, happens about once every two or three months, I'll be talking on the phone with someone and they'll say, I see he, him in your email signature. What does that mean? And so I'll say to the person, oh, those are my pronouns. The person will typically kind of get this puzzled voice and they'll say, well, why would you put that in your email signature? And my response is always, well, I want to be really clear about what pronouns I use, and I think it's important that we all are. Am I handling that well when I get that question, or is there even a better way I could be answering that question? I personally, I like including pronouns in email signatures and business cards, and I'll even go a step further and say uh, chosen names over perhaps uh, current legal names uh, for trans people. Uh, changing your legal name is one of the first steps to transition. And even though a person may not have legally changed their name, it's an easy lift to to use a chosen um, a chosen name or a true name in an email signature and a business card along with pronouns. The reason I like it is because it sets the tone for many in the private sector. This is becoming a mandatory practice for workplaces. Uh, because there is increased awareness and understanding for the need to create more inclusive workplaces, especially for transgender people. And I would say that it's also growing uh, in the nonprofit sector as well. But it's a great conversation starter. When a person asks, why are you including your pronouns in your email signature or on your business card? It allows you as a workplace, whether you're the you're the executive director or whether you're the receptionist at the front desk, it gives you an opportunity to share the organization's values around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it also gives you an opportunity to articulate the organization's commitment to creating a safer and more inclusive workplace that does include transgender people who do who do need to um, you know state their pronouns. And also, it puts the burden on uh, non-trans people to also share their pronouns as well. So it sounds like I could be going a step further and actually say to that person who asked me about it as the follow-up, this is part of how I demonstrate that my consulting practice is inclusive of people who are trans and gender non-binary, and I think we should all be doing it. I think it's a great icebreaker. For someone who asks the question, it is a great opportunity for the organization to not only talk about its mission, but also talk about its values as they relate to you know, serving not only the community, but also the issues they champion, and also the kind of staff, volunteers, and donors and funders that they want to be involved and invested in their work. I'll share with you, Andy, the first time I got that question, I was actually thrown a little off guard, because sort of like you, I do so much work in the LGBTQ community. The first time I got it, I was sort of like, what do you mean you have a question about this? And that's when I thought, oh, yeah, I need to figure out how I'm going to handle this question. And now I do get it maybe six times a year. And I do think that we are in a moment in the nonprofit sector where we're on the cusp of change, where there is, there is a transformation happening in the nonprofit sector and more and more nonprofits, including places like the Boys and Girls Clubs, 
uh, of the world are, are showing up and using uh, small and big cues to indicate their commitment to creating workplaces that affirm everyone. So after nonprofits have done their homework and really looked internally, and they're starting to look at some of these policies, and so pronouns and names are among those, are, are there other policies that organizations should be having conversations about? I think there's probably two ways that we can break this down. One is for organizations that have physical workspaces, and the other is organizations that perhaps don't. So let's start with organizations that have office space or workspace. Something that is becoming increasingly significant, not just for the workplace, but also in municipalities and jurisdictions across the country, is the question around public accommodations, specifically restroom facilities for transgender people to have access to. Where I live in New York City, there is a requirement for there to be an all-gender restroom in public accommodations across the city. Whether you're at a restaurant, whether you're at a movie theater or a bank, there should be an all-gender restroom available on site. And the beauty behind all-gender restrooms is that it doesn't just create a matter of physical safety or doesn't help increase the physical safety for trans people in being able to go about their business, but it also is incredibly important for parents who have children and need to take bio breaks with their children. And it's also um, incredibly helpful for folks with disabilities um, and being able to have um, not just an all-gender restroom, but also an ADA-compliant restroom. So there's there's a multitude of utilities for, for having an all-gender restroom in the workplace. It's a pretty straightforward, I think, practice. If you outright have space that has restrooms, consider converting them into being all gender restrooms. And that could be as simple as um, replacing the signs and indicating that these are all gender restrooms. It's especially easy too if they are single stall restrooms. And then the second the second question or um, point, if you are working in a building, other tenants that has uh, you know a, a set of bathrooms for a multitude of tenants, ask your landlord um, whether or not they have um, all gender restrooms available in their facility. And if they don't, ask them if they are up to code, depending on the jurisdiction that you live in. So for instance, beyond New York City, there are other cities like Washington, D.C. that have this requirement in place to ensure that trans people and other people across the spectrum of identities have access to that public accommodation. And I will also say that organizations can be creative with their signage for all gender restrooms. And I just want to give one example and see if, if you've seen any really creative signage. But in the LGBTQ community center in the town I live in, Atlanta, Georgia, they're all gender restrooms and all the restrooms are all gender. Their all gender restrooms have on the door an icon of a toilet and below it says y'all. I, You know, yes, I've seen a variety of signs that indicate that it's an all-gender or a single-stall restroom. I was, when I was traveling for work, I was staying at a hotel and I was, you know, I was about to dart to a meeting, but I needed to take a bio break. And I was in the lobby and I found the, the restrooms that were available in the hotel lobby area. And they had a all-gender restroom sign on their door. And it's surprising to see how this practice is being adopted, not just in the, uh, nonprofit sector or specifically among LGBTQ plus organizations, but across all sectors in the country um, to make sure that they are creating environments where people feel safe and affirmed 
um, in their identity. And I will say, I, I would not hold this up as a best practice, but I saw some very interesting signage at a restroom in a hip restaurant in Phoenix. And so you look at a wall and there's three doors. The one on the right says men, the one in the middle says everyone, the one on the left says women. Regardless of which door you walk through, you walk into the same room. Yeah, it was kind of cool because you walk through the door and it's like there's just a big open area with stalls all around this big open area. And you're like, and of course, the sink in the middle or sinks in the middle. And you're like, oh, got it. We all pee. Okay. And, you know, I think what's just as important, especially for organizations that do have clients, heavy client traffic that comes through their doors, um, if an individual asks where your restrooms are, indicate the options that are available. And say, if you do have an all-gender restroom, say that so that the client uh, or the individual that's visiting your office knows it's another social cue that they can pick up on that, oh, this is a workplace that has a baseline understanding of trans issues. But also, what's just as important is that it lets the client or the visitor know that the organization is not making assumptions based off a person's appearance. That person may or may not be out as either transgender or non-binary, and it really sets the tone to know that the organization is offering a level playing field for every person that walks through through your doors. I love it. And, And that's something that the Boys and Girls Club can do and the Humane Society can do and every other nonprofit across the country can do. Absolutely. Are there any other thoughts or policy ideas for organizations that are currently operating in physical space? And I know there's not many of those right now, but that are currently operating in physical space. I'm a big believer in uh, utilizing uh, the water cooler space and other other common areas in an organization's office. And I think it's a great opportunity to demonstrate an organization's values, commitment to its mission and communities that it serves. And it's also a great place to display what the organization cares about its staff. So a couple of examples. Usually when I walk into my my kitchen area um, in my office space, we have those compliance posters, those employment compliance posters that we all have to update every year. But in addition to that, we also hang or post information about the trans community in our space. And I think that there could be a similar application for organizations across the country, whether you're working in LGBTQ spaces or otherwise. Um, Use that space to hang a poster that's at list pronouns. Uh, Use common space to hang uh, a trans flag or the rainbow flag. And these are small items, but they pay off in huge dividends because, again, it's never a good practice to assume an employee's or a visitor's gender identity. And when a person sees those artifacts um, or those items in your office, they will have a sense of what you value. So I would say think about creative and fun ways to demonstrate your commitment to transgender inclusion. I wouldn't be surprised, especially for the non-LGBTQ organizations that are listening in, if they do that, they they will likely receive compliments and positive feedback from perhaps people they did not expect simply for de- demonstrating that they care. 
admittedly, I've not really thought about using the water cooler space, and I love that idea. That is such a good idea. Well, for those organizations that do not currently have physical space, and for those that do as well, there's probably some other policies that folks should be considering. There are. And, you know, there are two things that I especially want to call out or name. When I was a funder, prior to me taking the helm at TILDAF, the funder that I work for is one of the largest LGBTQ plus uh, funders in the world and grants millions of dollars annually to organizations, not just doing LGBTQ work, but also there was another program that really focused on conservation. And for both sides of the grant making house, when a grantee made it to that grants manager, there was a requirement that all grantees had to conform to. And that was a updated EEO policy that was passed by the board that included uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. This was a first that the foundation had invested in in terms of among their other philanthropic colleagues. So I would say, one, take a look at your EEO policy and make sure that it is inclusive of gender identity and sexual orientation. The second reason is because you now need to. So a few months ago in June, there were three cases that made it to the Supreme Court, and they were focused on uh, whether or not lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer employees could be fired based off of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And in a six to three ruling, the Supreme Court delivered the opinion that it was illegal under federal law to deny a person or to fire a person from a job because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Currently, or prior to that ruling, there were still 26 states in the country that made it perfectly legal for an employer to fire someone because of their gender identity. And with this recent SCOTUS ruling, every LGBTQ person in the country is protected under law because of this uh, historic first. What's also, you know, for the legal nerds out there, what's also incredibly exciting about that opinion is that this was the first ever transgender rights case to make it to the Supreme Court. And what makes it even more exciting for me is that there were transgender lead attorneys that stood before all of the justices and argued this transgender rights case. And third, the third exciting reason is that this work, this ruling would not have been possible if it weren't for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So as a social justice leader, I, I love to name that because the rights that we have, that have been affirmed by our nation's highest court would not have been made possible if it were not for the folks that came before us, particularly those that worked in the civil rights from the 1950s and the 1960s. Andy, you just made the hair on my arm stand up. I'm bald, so I have nothing on my head to stand up, but you literally just made the hair on my arm stand up. And I'm remiss if I do not say this and acknowledge this, that your organization has really been one of the drivers that have brought multiple cases that have led to this point and have really helped our nation get to this point. We were really honored to file an amicus brief in support of the, one of the three cases that were subsequently joined. So all three cases were essentially consolidated into one 
under this ruling came down. But we submitted, Tilbeth submitted an amicus brief on behalf of Amy Stevens, who was represented in the trans rights case. Amy Stevens was a funeral home director in the state of Michigan, and she was fired from her job because she came out as transgender. And our amicus brief for Tilbeth was incredibly important in that uh, it was signed by over 30 local and statewide transgender organizations from across the country. And we intentionally made that choice because we wanted the Supreme Court to know that transgender people care about what happens in our nation's highest court and that transgender people stand behind people like Amy Stevens when our lives truly depend on it. And I will also add, especially giving a kudos to the attorney at Tilda who worked on that amicus brief, we were the first one to file when briefs were due. So not that anyone should necessarily rushed to be the first, but we were incredibly proud to be a part of that case. And I will say, being the first or among the first shows real commitment. And everybody sees that. So the only other thing I have to reflect on, because I, I know a lot of our listeners are at nonprofits that have budgets of less than a million or two million or three or four million dollars. And TILDEF is not a hundred million dollar organization. Organizations can have a big impact if they have the kind of focus that TILDEF does. So I just I have to reflect on that as well. I don't want us to stray too far, though. So make sure gender identity and sexual orientation are in your EEO policy, especially now because it's the law and we all want to comply with the law. What are some other policies that maybe are not yet the law that we want to make sure organizations are thinking about? Well, at least in the conversations that I have with other executive directors, there's always, I think, a frequent topic is around health care benefits for their employees. Transgender people, like every other person who receives health care, when they go to a doctor or a specialist to receive care um, and they prescribe care, it, it, it's deemed medically necessary. And so there's a lot of questions around how can not just nonprofit organizations, I think employers writ large, how can employers provide transition-related care for employees who come out and want to medically transition to affirm their gender identity? And my operations manager receives a lot of these questions as well, too. And I think there's a few ways to answer this question. One is Zoom out. Not every organization has a $50 million budget. Uh, that can afford to self-fund all of the things that insurance plans do not cover for a lot of problematic reasons, reasons that TILDEF is currently working on and, and working to bring about systemic change. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but zoom out and see what your organization can realistically provide to your employees. And I'm going to offer a few different kinds of solutions that are currently in play at groups across the country. One is medical leave. Make sure for your employees that you have a robust medical leave plan in place or benefit in place. If you can't fully cover all of the costs that are related to transition-related care, at the very least, make sure that you are able to offer that employee who may pursue transition-related care that requires time out, offer them generous time off so they can have the peace of mind that their employer is giving them the time off to fully recover so they can come back not just healthy and in a good place to work, 
but also affirmed that their employer cares about them. Two is something related to name changes, so or identification. Depending on where you live in this country, legally changing your name can be a costly and time-expensive process. And what I mean by that is where I live in New York, even in New York City, uh, in order to apply for a legal name change, I have to fill out paperwork, I have to pay for filing fees, I have to go in front of a judge to make my case. And in some instances, I also need to pay to have that name change publicized in a publication. In other jurisdictions, it can be really simple. Like in California, it's a, an administrative procedure that you can seamlessly walk through. But more often than not, it's not an administrative procedure. And there are fees that are attached to changing your name. Some of those fees can range to $100. Others can range to 3000 So it can be a cost prohibitive and also confusing process to go through. So what I would say to employers who have some capacity to stretch their benefits a little bit, offer to pay for the name changes or the costs, the legal costs of changing a person's legal name. So their name matches with their gender identity. Changing your name, as you know, I'm sure Dolph knows in his time at Tilda, is a profoundly transformative experience. It is often the one of the first steps in a person's transition. And it provides a level of safety from whether you're applying for a job on an application to walking into a doctor's office and filling out a healthcare form to even going out to a club, showing your ID. When you do not have ID that matches your gender identity, it often creates scrutiny at best and at worst, it often can compromise a person's safety. So if an employer can offer a benefit that can subsidize or help change a person's name or one of their employees' names that is currently transitioning, I highly recommend it. It's something that till death we are that we have adopted since me coming on board. And I'm really excited um, to see other organizations and other workplaces do that as well. And then lastly, specifically related to the meat and potatoes, the actual health insurance policies, as it stands, health insurance plans across the country are still catching up with where we're at legally. And I would also say culturally. It's a, it's a very conservative industry. And it's also incredibly confusing whether or not you're trans or otherwise. Insurance is just confusing. Um, and for trans people who are trying to access their benefits for medically necessary care, oftentimes they encounter denials from their insurance providers or and or they uncover that there are blanket exclusions that ex exclude certain um, procedures that would that would fall under uh, their medically necessary care. TILDEF launched in 2020 the Trans Health Project. I strongly encourage listeners who are considering um, taking a closer look at their benefits or encountering challenges with their insurance plans around this issue to visit our website at transgenderlegal.org click on the Trans Health Project, and you'll find an array of information ranging from all of the clinical insurance policies that we have accumulated and compiled to legal memos demonstrating the legal right for a trans person to have access to this medically necessary care, especially given the recent ruling by SCOTUS that also um, has set a really strong precedent 
for us to um, challenge insurance providers that are denying care to trans people. And also it includes self-help materials as well to essentially walking a person through how to challenge denials and walking individuals through the appeals process with an insurance provider. And if all else fails, you should absolutely reach out and contact us for assistance navigating your insurance or sharing uh, any challenges that you may have encountered uh, with interactions with your insurance provider. I love that. And I would imagine if folks go to your health project and review some of the documents there, they'll probably get a really good sense of what they should be asking their insurance broker when it's time for the insurance renewal to make sure that their policies are trans-inclusive. Absolutely. And, you know, given the recent SCOTUS ruling, we have certainly set our eyes to making sure that because we have this momentum and we have the wind in our sails, we are making sure through the Trans Health Project that both public and private health insurance plans nationwide eliminate all of these exclusions that employers grapple with on a daily basis. That is so awesome because across our country, health insurance is a patchwork. So every state kind of gets to decide what their health insurance rules are going to be. And some states now have even been allowed, as you know, by the current administration, have even been allowed to really water down what the bare minimum policy should look like. And I'll I'll even take it a step forward for, for those EDs or operations directors or HR directors that are listening, it's not easy for nonprofits, especially small nonprofits, because we fall under the small group plans, right? And so our goal with the Trans Health Project is to make sure that whether you are a large employer that exceeds more than 100 employees, or you are a small group employer that is under 100 employees, everyone has equitable access to the care and coverage that they deserve and that they pay for. Tildef is doing great work, and this is another example of the ways that you're doing great work. Thank you. Andy, I want to be respectful of your time. We're just actually about to go over the point at which I promised you that we would stop, but I'm going to break that promise because I also have to ask you an off-the-map question. You are a civil rights leader and an advocate, but everyone is so much more than just what they do as part of their vocation and their career. So I want our listeners to get to know you just a little bit better. And because we know each other pretty well, I know that you're also a writer. And so I'm hoping that you'll share with our listeners a little bit about your writing practice. So in 2008, uh, it was I was working in the LGBTQ plus movement. And it was at a time when the fight for marriage equality was at its peak. And it was around the time when uh, there was the legal challenge for Proposition 8. And it was also around the time when there were a string of anti-transgender deaths. And to be frank, I was burnt out. I was traumatized and I was burnt out. Um, Where I was working, I was traveling two or three times a month at any given time, assigned to, to matters or cases to support. And it was incredibly stressful. So I made myself a cliche New Year's resolution that I would carve out time for myself for a practice that was selfishly about me and just about me. I landed on writing. I remembered as a child that I used to love to write. 
silly, goofy stories. And I figured, well, you know, maybe I'll give this another go and see if this is this is a, a simple practice that I can pick up that takes me away from all of the terrible and difficult stuff that I have to work on on a day-to-day basis. And from there, it blossomed into this practice of writing essays. So I've always dreamed and aspired to write a full-on manuscript, and perhaps that will happen one day. But to make my writing practice sustainable, I landed on writing long-form personal essays. And it started with me writing an essay about traveling back to Korea. I am a Korean adoptee and searching for my family in Korea. And with that story um, also came the unexpected event of me not only finding my family in Korea, but also coming out to them as a transgender woman, which was incredibly scary at the time, um, but it reaped dividends. And from there, I have written other essays that really focus on identity related to adoption, related to my gender identity, related to race and ethnicity and the the intersections of all of those three identities that I hold and carry with me on a day-to-day basis. And it has been a very healing experience for myself, but what has been incredibly rewarding is to see how so many other people out in the world have been able to take those essays that I've written and find some inspiration or encouragement in them as they, you know, they grapple with their own journeys based off of identity. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know your writing practice has been powerful for you personally. I also feel that part of what you're saying to folks is make sure you have some practice that helps you take care of yourself and helps you be you. I think especially now with all of the challenges that nonprofit leaders are are holding, it really feels like the world has fallen on our on our heads. And especially for advocacy organizations or social justice organizations, this is an incredibly difficult time to navigate. And I would say it is it is just as important to find some time for yourself to release the burden and the weight and come back to the work even more refreshed and to keep your well replenished so you can continue to to fight the good fight. Absolutely. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to make sure our listeners know how to both get a hold of TILDEF, but also take some of these next steps that we talked about. And so they can go to transgenderlegal.org. There, you listeners can check out the health project so you can start to work on that you also by the way can check out their name change project whether you're interested in a name change or you just want to know more by the way it's a really cool project multiple states also at transgenderlegal.org i would strongly recommend that you sign up for their action alerts you will get alerts both on hey you can help us by doing x y or z but you'll also get good news in your email box like, ooh, we won at the Supreme Court. And it always makes my day when I get one of those we won emails from Tildef. So listeners, thank you so much. And Andy, thank you so much for joining us today to help our listeners understand how they can build more trans-inclusive organizations. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Listeners, if for any reason you are not able to write down transgenderlegal.org or remember that, and the reason is probably because you're right now looking through your employee handbook to see whether or not gender identity and sexual orientation are included in your EEO policy, don't worry. You know you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and get the link to Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. And listeners, if you liked this conversation with Andy Mara, I would suggest that you listen to two other episodes. Episode number 61, Engineering Equity into Your Organization with Daria Torres. And then episode number 167, DEI, Leading by Example with Jermaine Guillaume. So again, if you liked this conversation, check out these other two episodes. It will be worth your while. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.